The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone from the metropolitan New York City area. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the more interesting facets of archaeology and uh, one of the elements of our field that has gotten a fair amount of attention in recent years is the potential to establish connections between contemporary places and ancient places and to establish, if not necessarily a connection or a continuity, at least a sense of place that allows people to understand the antiquity of human settlement in a, in a continuum rather than in a series of just sort of punctuated episodes, if you will. We've talked about this on a number of programs, specifically dealing with Near Eastern cities, Asian cities uh, and a variety of New World cities as well in prehistory. And today is a, a very exciting. Uh, example of a very recently discovered city, an ancient prehistoric city, certainly by North American standards, that has been the topic of uh, discovery and development by uh, one of my I don't want to say oldest colleagues, but he is one of uh, certainly one of my colleagues that uh, I met in my earliest professional days, and he is going to talk about this research and how it connects to a contemporary location in uh, in the Great Plains. Uh, my guest is Dr. Don Blakesley, who is a professor of anthropology at Wichita State University, and he has taught there for very many years, and he earned his degrees at the University of Nebraska, his PhD at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Uh, he's a specialist in the archaeology of the Great Plains. His research interests range from the time of the earliest settlement of the Americas to the historic period, and his work has carried him from Montana to Texas. He has worked on the archaeology and the route of the Coronado expedition since the early 1990s. As a personal note, on a personal note, Don and I met at uh, the site of Cahokia, which we have discussed on this program on numerous occasions, and there is a connection 
uh, both in terms of subject matter, the archaeology of place, which was what we will be talking about going forward, uh, between Cahokia, I think, and the new site that uh, that Don has been working on called Etzanoa. Don, welcome to the program. Thank you, Joe. Don, tell us a little bit about your interests in Great Plains archaeology and how they led to the pursuit that ultimately resulted in your present body of work. Okay, I started uh, serious research uh, looking at trade relationships on the Great Plains. That was the topic of my dissertation. And during that work, I hadn't figured out that one of the topics I had to cover was Native American trails. And that developed later uh, in conjunction with one of my then students. And trying to document where those trails ran and what they were used for led to historic explorations because it turned out all of the famous explorers or famous because they were more or less successful, and they were successful because they had Indian guides who led them along native trails. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the first major project I did was uh, looking, an accident of one summer working in both Kansas and Nebraska, I realized that I had been on two spots on the route of a French expedition in 1739. And I then proceeded over a number of years tracking that expedition place to place, documenting exactly where they went, and felt pretty good at the end of it. Uh, And then almost immediately I received notice of a conference that was going to deal with the route of the Coronado expedition. And I thought, well, I I could contribute just a little bit by saying, look for the native trails, and you will be able to find the route. Mm -hmm. And I went to that conference and came away dismayed that it was a National Park Service team that had dealt with the California Trail and the Oregon Trail and the Natchez Trace, and they knew exactly how to research those, but the methods they proposed to use for Coronado, I was convinced, wouldn't work. And uh, uh, the upshot of it was I got involved in looking for that, and we eventually found one of his campsites in Texas. And I thought at the end of that, well, maybe I'm done with this. Uh, Mm -hmm. But then then I ran across, I had paid attention to the Oñate expedition of 1601. One of the trips he made was up to this the central plain somewhere and just uh, a little over a year ago i ran across it's called the quivira project uh, a, a project by linguists uh, and historians retranscribing and retranslating the early documents from spanish new mexico mm-hmm And when I looked at them, available for free online, I was absolutely blown away by the the quality of the work and how well documented everything was. 
And my first reaction was just to spread the word to all of my colleagues. Emailed a bunch of people, said, you've got to look at this. Right. And then, oh, several months later, I sat down and really looked at it myself and got past all of the footnotes, which are many, 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 many pages of footnotes, and got to the new translations. And as I read it, I went, oh, this is so much clearer than what was available before. And then I realized, okay, I've got five or six or seven different eyewitnesses to this series of events. And what I did was sit down and pull out one topic at a time what everybody had to say and compiled that. And when I did, I... My view of the archaeology of that, that time and place was completely transformed. You said something earlier that I think uh, requires a little bit more explanation. It's fascinating. You said that you looked at some of the earlier uh, trade route documentation records from different parts of the country, and from what I'm gathering, you're saying they just didn't fit in this particular area with the Coronado Expedition. Is it because of the Coronado Expedition, because it was a a different time frame, or was it just a different terrain that the methods that were used for interpreting the the more standard or the older trackways were were just so different? What what was the main difference here? Well, well, the main difference was that, uh, let's take the Santa Fe Trail. the The U.S. government paid to have that surveyed. We know pretty clearly where it ran, and there's just a ton of documentation, and so it was, the problem with that kind of trail was not so much where was it, as what sites are truly associated with it, can we dispel a few historical myths and begin to build up a route that people might follow. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Coronado and the DeSoto expedition as well, exactly where they went was not at all clear. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the the procedure that I think you would have followed or I, if it had been given to either one of us, would be to say, okay, let's find out everybody who knows something about this and bring them all together and let them argue out as much as can be argued out to narrow down the possibilities and and then figure out how we can test the competing ideas mm-hmm. that's not what they were doing they with, with the santa fe trail they knew where it was right and so it was a, an, an entire they they just thought they could use that approach and what they ended up with was <laughs> they generated a map of his route onto the Great Plains that, okay, it shows him going through Pecos Pueblo because that's, they said they did that. And then it, it turns into this huge blob on the map of, we're pretty sure he was in here somewhere, but exactly where, we don't know. Right. Uh, and so it was frustrating because if they had dealt with the Native American roots of travel, uh, they're they're limited in number. Uh, it's kind of hard to find out exactly where some of them were. But if you're leading an army of several thousand people, 
you're going to use the equivalent of the interstate. You're going to use the the route that leads you to water with great regularity, that leads you to the, the kind right. of resources you need. Those are limited in number. The problem becomes solvable if you start with all of that accumulated native knowledge. So you're using the native knowledge in a sense to give you sort of the guideposts. Exactly. So they give you sort of fixed points on a map, and you're basically looking at interpolating and extrapolating from that point on. Right. The the question is, which native trails did his guides lead him along? And then you end up with a, a series of possibilities, and then it's a matter of choosing among them. Okay. And so uh, uh, my, my last uh, thing I wrote on that, I actually figured out where a particular event during that trip occurred. And once I realized, oh, this is where it was, and this explains all of the, all a series of issues, and then it's a matter of, Okay, this was at an intersection of several trails, and they chose to go on one and not the others, which caused somebody to throw a hissy fit because he wanted to go home. He wasn't interested in going this other direction. And you can go to that exact spot. That's what I find exciting. You can go there. Um, so is is let let's yeah. let's put it to this way. So you have these guideposts, you have these mileposts, if you want to call it that. How carefully documented is the actual account that uh, enables you to actually sort of match it all up with, say, natural features on the landscape, traces of a route? How how carefully were you able to do that? Well, it depends on which trip you're talking about. For sure. the Onyate expedition that we're eventually going to talk about, for what he saw in southern Kansas and northern Oklahoma, uh, there's a wonderful set of details that are reported in these documents. Uh, and there's a high hill beside which there's a little ravine where something happened. There's a crossing, a ford of the river, and then not mentioned in the documents, but once you're there and you look, you cross the river and then you look up at this high bluff and you go, and they had carts. How did they get those carts up the hill? Where, mm-hmm. where is there a feasible route? And then how far is that forward from the beginning of the town that they report? And how does, when they get to the far end of the town, why did they turn towards the east, which they reported? And all of that fits uh, to with great specificity to this one place in the world. So you're actually able to go to a location that you have, say, let's say, for lack of a better term, two sets of converging information sets, let's say, and then you're there, and then all of a sudden it all starts to fit in because the descriptions are so accurate, or or you're saying it can only be this hill, or it can only be this ford, or it, it can only exactly. be... Exactly. Prior to the publication, or republication, retranslation of these documents, uh, people had looked for where Onyate went, and there were essentially two competing hypotheses that uh, 
Susan Vayek at the University of Oklahoma had come up with. And they were both quite reasonable. She wasn't able to choose between them. Either mm. they were up in southern Kansas or they were down in northern Oklahoma, two different places, no way to sort it out. But Based on, this based level on of, what? Well, uh, based on the distribution of archaeological sites I see. and what the previous translation seemed to say. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the new ones are just, well, first of all, they retranscribe the old documents, and that led to them catching some major errors. So uh, the, the problem is those old tr- documents are handwritten in an archaic form of Spanish. Right, right. In, in old Spanish script with no punctuation and sometimes no spaces between words. Though most of these documents were a little better than that. There, there were spaces between most of the words. So the first thing you have to do is transcribe it so that you can begin to translate it. Well, Herbert Bolton, very famous historian, hired somebody to transcribe one of the major documents and got seven or eight pages typewritten. And, but before he got to translating them, uh, I don't know if he dropped them or what, but these pages were not numbered and they got out of order. Oh, my God. Well, exactly. So, but <laughs> as as the fellow who was in charge of this more recent project said, he was such a fantastic translator that he managed to make sentences out of uh, or comprehensible sentences out of those bad transitions that didn't belong together. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So, but that gives you an idea of how difficult the translations are, anyway. Of course. That you wouldn't notice that. Oh. The first half of this sentence and the second half don't belong together. Right. So there was that kind of problem. But also, some people are really good at taking what's in one language and making it, without twisting it, making it idiomatic in English. And John Polt, who's one of the people who worked on this, is obviously very, very good. So, with a few exceptions, when you read the documents in translation, they're crystal clear. You understand what's going on. And that's what led me to the idea, as I read these accounts, that, gee, I wonder how that fits with the archaeological site records that we have. And that turned out to work out really well. And then I said, well, how does it fit with the landscape? And that explained more of what was in the documents. And then it got down to this point by point. Yeah, here's the high hill. Here's the ravine. Here's the river crossing. Here's the route up. Everything fell into place, both going and coming. And we will... they, we will they, be back. they pass by this town, and then they come back, and they end up in a battle with some local folks. And it, when I pulled all of those descriptions together, I, I had that you know, uh, goosebump kind of reaction that, right, I know right, where this right. is. I've been to this place. There's place. only one place that matches this. 
Well, we'll be back with Don Blakesley after these words, and we will continue with this fascinating reconstruction of linking documentation, archaeology, historic records after these words. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. On the morning of August 5, 1962, the world awoke to the shocking news that Marilyn Monroe, one of the biggest icons in Hollywood history, had been found dead. What really happened that night? Join Nina Bosky as she seeks to uncover both the life and tragic death of Marilyn Monroe and what keeps her so popular over 50 years later. Good Night Marilyn Radio, live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Donald Blakesley is a professor of anthropology at Wichita State University who has spent most of his career uh, doing archaeology of the Great Plains and uh, the Southern Plains and into Texas. And he has discovered a very, very major uh, settlement that he will be talking about. It's called Etsanoa. And what we've been talking about in the first section and the first segment of our program is how archaeology draws on a number of different fields to assemble information that would otherwise be very difficult to put together, uh, certainly in terms of locating this fascinating uh, city that uh, Don will be talking about. He put together um, accounts from the Coronado expedition of the Spanish in the early uh, colonial periods, uh, explorer periods of uh, Central North America, and he was able to link up the accounting of the uh, 
of the explorers themselves with the help of linguists uh, and a variety of other specialists to document the trails that, that Coronado followed and to uh, look at the archaic Spanish, put it together, and link up that information with both the archaeological record and with the land, landscape records. And he was in the, in the process of telling us this fascinating story. Don, why don't you ta- lead us into your discovery of the site based on what we were talking about and putting together and explaining the the fit between landscape archaeology and the documentation. Okay, the Onyate expedition occurred in 1601. Uh, he founded New Mexico, the Spanish colony there, a few years earlier, and by 1601, things were not going well, and he decided to follow up on a mention of a really large town uh, that he got from a survivor of a previous expedition. And so he set out with a small army uh, with about 80 men, with various uh, animals and with some carts drawn by mules and oxen. They had uh, a couple of cannon with them. And the documents that survive and have been retranslated include the official account of the expedition that was written after the fact by apparently by one of the priests. But then in 1602, uh, there was an inquiry held in Mexico City, and we have eyewitness accounts from five of the soldiers who were along on the expedition who were questioned. And we have information from a native of the area who was ta- captured and taken to, first to New Mexico and then down to Mexico City. So multiple accounts, and when I pulled various parts together, it became, well, it became clear first that the typical or the, what had been the standard interpretation of these accounts was wrong. And the standard interpretation was, oh, there wasn't a town that big. The Spanish were exaggerating. Well, the clearest account of the size of the town comes from a witness, a soldier uh, named Baltazar. And old Baltazar was asked after he'd given his account, uh, well, would you go back there? especially if we pretty much paid your way, would you go back? And right. he, essentially he said, no way, just no way, no. Uh-huh. This, is, this is way too far, there's nothing in it for me, I ain't going back. <laughs> so well, he had no reason to exaggerate the nature of the place. He was being quizzed by officials and giving an, given an honest account. What's more... He mentioned that the boss had assigned four men to count the houses. And his, his account is very, very clear. And he said there were 2,000 houses. Another account says 1,700. One says more than 2,000. Uh, but all of the Spaniards agreed that there were about 10 people per house. 
What's more, how many different accounts? How many different accounts were there? Well, uh, there were the five soldiers plus the official account plus what the native tried to tell them using sign language. Right, of course. But of course, he doesn't. He doesn't give a number, but he gives other useful information. Right. So Baltazar also said we. They get to the end of this town, and because of what the their leader had done earlier, uh, taking he had taken some hostages, and so the local folks had hightailed it, and there was no one in the town. So they get there, and he said that night we camped in the end of the town, and then the next day we traveled beside the town. And here's an interesting little phrase: because of the carts. And we traveled until we got to the end of the town, which was just about two leagues. Now, two common Spanish leagues is five and a quarter miles. Mm -hmm. Well, I have access to the state uh, site records, and so I pulled out all the info and put it on a map and said, okay, here's where the town appears to begin, and here's where this distribution of sites ends. And there are 20-some individually recorded sites that turn out to be scattered for five miles. Just hmm. we, And I went, oh, that's cool. And then I, I read more carefully and started matching it to the landscape. And he said, when we came to the end of the town, we had to swing more to the east. And again, he, he cites, because of the carts. Well, at the northern end of this site distribution, the river makes a very big bend to the east. Right. And the, it's, the river itself is bordered by very high bluffs through which there are deep, deep ravines caught that are filled with brush and trees. And right. so they had to swing out away from the river to avoid those ravines. And even so, his account makes very clear they eventually uh, came to a dead end anyway. They, they got back towards the river and were blocked by a ravine full of trees. And then his account said, so the boss sent some scouts out, and they're gone most of the day, and they come back and report the town starts up again. So there's this... Again, it's about five miles of this eastward loop. And north of that, the archaeological site record shows more sites of the same time period. Now, when you looked at the uh, site records, you were basically looking at the site distribution records of sites that had been recorded in the state, right? Exactly. As, okay. as recorded by people responding to different requests for surveys. Of course, of course. And of course. so you're so, looking at, you're looking at a, at a distribution of uh, archaeological sites that the uh, State Historic Preservation Office would keep and you're looking at clustering patterns and distribution patterns and you're saying here's a cluster, there's a cluster and then you're starting to essentially map this up with these records. Exactly what what I did and one of the things that was very very clear uh, I had noticed it uh, been involved in a project down there previously that these site boundaries are artificial. Of course. Uh, so one of the, 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 the biggest site recorded as a site is called the Country Club site, which has a country club up at the northern end. And the mm-hmm. eastern border of the Country Club site is 
a perfect north-south line. And the southern border is a perfect east-west line because mm-hmm. it was recorded as ending at two roads. Uh-huh. So, so obviously, uh, you know, it's an approximation of uh, the actual site distribution. And what's more, the eyewitness accounts make very clear that the site itself was uh, composed of clusters of houses separated by cornfields. Mm-hmm. And so some of the site boundaries might be, that, well, the person reached the end of the area where there's a lot of stuff, and that's what we do. We draw a boundary somewhere and try to justify it. And so if you're surveying in a plowed field and the artifact distribution drops off, you say, okay, this is the end of this site. Right. And then you go on. So what the eyewitness accounts from 1601 were saying was, no, there are these sites that are on both sides of the river. And in 1601, at least, they were all one continuous community. So what you're looking at is the the previous site re- records, which clearly were from independent surveys for whatever reason, they used whatever criteria were used during that time uh, in, in, in archaeological survey times, and they documented, they drew their boundaries, they identified the diagnostic artifacts, they set them up, and now you have evidence, documentary documentation evidence, that says, uh-uh, this is continuous. Exactly. At least in 1601, it was continuous. Yeah, right. Now, right. some of the, the material from the, that's been excavated on the west side of the river goes back centuries. Of course. I don't think the whole thing was occupied, the whole area was occupied for centuries. But right. in 1601, all of a sudden, these 20-odd sites become one community. So, so let me ask you one basic question that an archaeologist would would ask. Uh, at at this stage in your research, are you looking at the diagnostics for these particular sites, and are you finding that temporally they're all of the same time frame? Were they village, or did they have earlier components? Could there have been stratification? What about that? What about that question of time and space? Um, okay, there and, is some earlier material. That, right. Uh, by earlier, I mean the, yes, I have this one timeline, 1601, but right. there was continuous occupation of the ancestors of the people who were there in 1601, starting right. sometime in the 1400s. Okay. okay so this, this was a place that was already occupied for several centuries, during which time I think there was some substantial population growth, and which continued to be occupied up till about 1700 A.D. Uh So the occupation also continues later. Right. So uh, so a complex early history that we haven't been able to parse out. We're, We're not at that stage yet. Right, right, of course. But but you're 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 starting to put together the continuity of the occupation more or less, right? Because I mean, you're looking at a couple hundred years, basically, right? Even though some, right. some uh, right, yeah. So yes, there's several hundred years. Uh, it's going to be interesting to try to parse it out. Uh, 
there was a project done on the west side of the river when the Corps of Engineers built some levees and a highway was relocated. So there was a major project done there. And what happens when people live in one place for several centuries is lots of stuff gets churned up and mixed together. Mm-hmm. And so they ran a whole series of radiocarbon dates that where you do have stratigraphy, say, within a pit, a lot of these are from, almost all of their dates came from uh, large pits that were right. eventually trash-filled. Uh, dates from far down in a pit are not older than dates from higher up in a pit. Right. Uh, dates because from a single pit it. are separated by a couple of hundred years. Right. It's all a blur. So we cannot use charcoal. The people made pottery that, for the most part, they didn't decorate. And so the pottery isn't going to be as useful as it often is. So we will be uh, switching to dating animal bone, where we... We can tell by looking at a bone whether it lay around on the surface for a while or whether it was quickly buried. And so we intend to use bison bone, which is the most common form of bone at the site, right. uh, to to get some dates and see if we can begin to parse out some sequence using that. So the bison, the faunal material is a better chronological indicator than anything else at this site? Uh, yeah. The problem with wood charcoal, of course, is that you have a backscatter of ages. If you have a piece of charcoal from a burned log, you can be pretty sure, well, that's not going to give you the cutting date. No, of course not. You have, mo- you have mobilization of the charcoal. It moves all over the place. Exactly, and, and, and it gets recycled, and the last thing it right. gets used for is firewood. So that's right. Uh, we're hoping that the bone dates will give us a a more precise accounting. We're not sure that's going to work because we still have the mixing problem. But big pieces of bone don't move around as much as little pieces of charcoal. How thick are the cultural deposits, period? They're, in some places, incredibly thick. One of our projects this summer that uh, happened, (laughs) some of this project has just happened, a local fellow set up a web page to let everybody in the area know about what we were up to. Mm -hmm. And he also put on it without telling me. Well, he didn't even tell me he was going to do that, but he uh, put on it uh, a place where people could sign up to volunteer. And so all of a sudden we had a volunteer component uh, in addition to the field school component. And so I talked to somebody who had uh, an appropriate background and asked her, would you want to run this? And she said, sure. And so we set them on a piece of city-owned land where we had full access and just had them do surface survey over a goodly number of acres. And the idea was to see whether the distribution of just surface debris would fit this verbal description of uh, a town made up of clusters of houses uh, separated by cornfields and such. And as it turned out, indeed, they found a major concentration of stuff uh, 
and other areas surrounded by an area where there was very little. So it looks like we found one of those clusters. And uh, I might be getting a little ahead here. We we used magnetometry to do some subsurface mapping. And we found areas with hardly anything. And we found areas that apparently had houses. The houses are very hard to see. They were surface structures, grass houses, but surrounded by circles of trash-filled pits. And oh, my goodness. Oh, oh they're, they're very, very nice. <laughs> because the, uh, if we go back to Baltazar, the, the kind of informant you would love to have on any dig, he said, okay, the, the town's <laughs> made up of these clusters of houses. Houses, yeah. Okay, there, there are 30 to 40 houses per cluster. The houses range in, and now he was measuring circumferences, pacing it off, but in terms of diameters, uh, 25 to 32 feet in diameter, and he gives the range of distances between houses in each cluster, and the, the range of distances between clusters of houses. How's that? Amazing. For, yeah, well, Amazing. exactly, and so we come along, and we were only able to use the magnetometers where there wasn't too much modern stuff. And successfully, at any rate. But there were was an area we got we were allowed on that had never been plowed. Right. And lo and behold, you know, the first area we surveyed, we there were like one or two pits. There was hardly anything. And I'm going, this is supposed to be close to the center of the site. This is awful. And then the next block we did, there are just what are obviously storage pits all over the place. And then when you sort of sit and look at them for a while, they resolve themselves into, oh, here's a circular area with hardly anything, and it's surrounded by, depending on the, which one you look at, one or two circles of pits. So a place that had had a house for a long time will have two concentric rings of storage pits around it. Amazing stuff. Uh, we have to take another break, and we will be back with this incredible story of the uh, ancient town of Etzanoa that uh, Professor Don Blakesley at Wichita State University has been working on for how long now? Well, we, it's uh, less than a year. So we'll be back and talk about that right after these words. Stay tuned. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. 
This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we are back with a uh, unique episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. I'm talking with my colleague, uh, Dr. Don Blakesley, who is a professor at, of anthropology at Wichita State University. And Don has uh, doing, been doing work for nearly a year at a site called Etzanoa, which currently occupies, as Don corrected my pronunciation, the modern city of, of Arkansas City, comma, Kansas. And um, let's talk about the fact that this is almost a perfectly uh, good example of a town built on another town, essentially, right? Sort of a European town uh, or Euro-American town uh, essentially on the remains of uh, of a Native American town. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and how it relates to the connection not only of uh, the ancient city, but also of uh, the Native American legacy? Okay, there's there are several elements here. One of them is that, uh, as we explain to the people in the modern town, that they had this piece of heritage literally under their feet, uh, they got very, very interested. Uh, they had vaguely known something was there, but uh, other than a collector or two, there wasn't any specific interest. But when they realized that they had one of the largest archaeological sites in the country, uh, they have and proceeded to organize themselves. They set up a 501c3 organization to... Really? Wow. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's become a major public archaeology project, and they intend to document this place and create uh, an interpretive center for it and to preserve as much of it as they can. And in doing that, they have involved, whenever possible, the leadership of the Wichita tribe. The Wichitas are the modern descendants of the people who, who occupied this and, important fact, other such towns in Kansas. This wasn't mm-hmm. the only one. It's the only one for which we have clear eyewitness information. So... Uh, That project is going to take quite a while and quite a bit of effort, 
But the Wichita's are very enthusiastic about it. Uh, they hadn't, because uh, of the historic period and the losses they suffered, had no specific knowledge of it. And uh, that was the first thing I did was I invited them to come up and I drove them across the site and wow. we went to the south end and I said, okay, here's where, this is roughly about where this town begins. And then we drove for miles and miles and miles and it's, there's no one through street that gets you to the other end. And I got, finally got to the other end and I said, look down there, you see that, that little point, that's, that's the other end of the town. Wow. And they were quiet. Uh, very typical Native American reaction if you've dealt with right. Native Americans right. to, to be very oh, quiet yeah. for a while. But they're not so quiet anymore, and they're they're thrilled with this and d- deeply involved and invested in it. So, yes, these were ancestral Wichitas, and you've used the name Etsanawa, we know the name of the site because of the captive who was hauled off to New Mexico and then Mexico City. The, the Spanish called him Miguel. We don't mm-hmm. know what his original name was. But he drew a map of the area. And on the, once he drew the map, uh, he was communicating by sign language with sure. the Spaniards as best he could. But when he drew various places, he pronounced the names. And uh, so the, uh, the official scribe wrote it down. So we know the name of the place was Etsanoa. We know there was another major settlement further north in Kansas that he called Tankoa. Mm-hmm. And another one that he called Abiyam, or Abiyanna. It's spelled two different ways. So three towns at least. Not, and one of them, the Spaniards said, well, he was from the Pueblos, plural, of Tancoa. So he managed mm-hmm. to indicate that Tancoa was a, a province, maybe. Right. And so, yeah, so the, when we, we so far we said 20,000 people, um, I'm not sure that's all of this one site. The survivor of the previous expedition who had been interviewed in New Mexico described it as a town that it took him three days to walk through. Wow. Yeah, and there's a, one of our next plans is surveying north of where we have documented sites on the west side of the river where the Spanish wouldn't have been able to see the land because they had to get away, out around with their carts around the ravines. So there's a right. there's a five miles of river. They did not see the river bottoms. And then north of that, there is more site of the same time period, the same culture. Uh, that's not been adequately surveyed. So this may extend for miles and miles and miles. And the 20,000 might be just south at Sanoa. Wow. In, yeah, in which case, <laughs> uh, well, as it is, uh, you'll, you'll be you, there were, you, worked, you worked at Cahokia, you know, the, the, sort of the average uh, modern estimate is... Uh, 20,000. Right. Well, our little place here has 20,000, and I think it, what is, and scattered 
right? They're, they're clusters of houses in between cornfields. Uh, the neighborhoods at Cahokia were much more concentrated than that. So I yeah. think that modern estimates of Cahokia need drastic revision upward. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing. I mean, obviously, you're coordinating efforts between the tribes, between the modern city, and between the academic institutions. How is that working, and how are you putting together all these components? I'm sure there's a public outreach component. There's the research component, which is obviously critical. You're involving the state of Kansas, I'm sure. How is all that working, and how are you seeing it going forward? How is the effort going forward? Well, thanks to the local people, it's going pretty well. The we needed some money this summer, as you you might imagine, and uh, a local foundation stepped forward with some. The city pledged some. The tribe pledged some. The local historical society pledged a bit, and that got us through uh, the first year. And we're going to have to do the same again uh, in order to, we want to begin using magnetometry since up at the north end, north of the present day town where the site is recorded as several separate sites. There are some large areas of agricultural fields that need survey. But in the modern era, everybody's doing no-till and it's really hard to see anything on the ground. But a magnetometer would pick up the remains of the pits. Of course. And, and, that and would... allow us to document uh, where the, the house clusters are. And so are you, we are want you get, to do that. Yeah. Are you getting we, a good estimate of a, a good guideline of how the area functioned locally during its period of, of uh, peak fluorescence? Uh, there's a good question. Uh, it's really interesting because it has... Uh, bent my little mind. Everyone who's dealt with the archaeology of this time and place has always talked about and thought in terms of clusters of villages. So there had been 20 little villages in Arkansas City, only now it's one large town or one end of an even larger town Right, And so that means a different social organization. It means a wildly different economy. And we got some results this summer. We had with us in the field uh, Linda Scott Cummings, who runs her own, she's got an analytical laboratory in Golden, Colorado. Mm -hmm. And she had developed the world's very first mobile analytical lab for archaeology. Right. And so she drove out to our site and analyzed things as they came out of the ground or were handed to us. And the first thing she looked at, uh, a local fellow gave us to look at three stone tools that he had collected years and years before. And one of her capacities in the field was to do uh, protein residue analysis. And so she took these three stone tools and got, a, got results, and two of them turned out to have turkey residue. Wow. 
And I went, well, and, my, and my reaction was, are you sure? That doesn't make any sense. The faunal remains from the sites have some bird bones, but not many. So two out of three seemed awfully odd. But then I gave it some thought. Okay, you're going to have to do some math here, Joe. 20,000 people, of whom half are males. And so let's say 40% of them are males above the age of 10, who would have a bow and a quiver full of arrows. Right. Okay. The standard unit and recorded for other groups in the historic period was the arrow makers would make arrows in sets of 20. So you've got 8,000 guys each with 20 arrows. That's uh, 160,000 arrows, each with uh, three pieces of feather. You're almost up to half a million pieces of feather. Wow. Yeah. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to bring this to an end. Okay. Sorry, Diane. We have run out of time. Is there a website that people can uh, reference to to get more information? Well, there, there, it, there's going to be a Facebook page back up. It was taken down temporarily, but it's called Etzanoa. That's E-T-Z-A-N-O-A. Well, I want to thank Don Blakesley, my esteemed colleague, for this outstanding presentation, and I'm sure you'll be all be reading about Etsanoa going forward. Thanks a lot, Don. We appreciate it. Sure thing, Joe. Okay, and until next time, we will see you next week with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Until then, good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.